This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saris, maker of indoor trainers, power meters, so and bike racks. All right, Rachel, what are we doing? Putting my bike on this new bike rack. Not only do they offer a lifetime warranty on their products, but 90% of the raw materials are sourced within 120 miles of where they're manufactured in Madison, Wisconsin. That's just a long bike ride away. What is this? <gasps> it's a lock! Sarah's products are built by cyclists for cyclists. And you can tell. Take their updated Super Clamp, an extremely durable, easy to install hitch rack that now has wider wheel trays to fit bigger tires, as well as a locking system built right in. So I just loop it through the frame anywhere? The, the super clamp is exactly what you'd expect from the kind of company that dedicates $100,000 every year to bicycle advocacy. Oh my goodness. That's really easy. Or the kind of company that every spring rolls down to a bike path in Madison to serve brat cakes to commuters. That's a bratwurst wrapped in a pancake smothered in syrup. Sarah served more than 900 of them last year to encourage more people to ride to work. Because whether it's bikes or breakfast or just making a rack really easy to use, Sarah knows what cyclists really want. What'd you say? It's, it's idiot. Well, don't say that. I don't want to <laughs> From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. It takes a long time to officially declare a species extinct. And that sort of makes sense. Extinction is final. There's no half extinct. It's the end of a genetic line, a whole branch of evolution. You may have heard that we're in the middle of a massive extinction. We're seeing the end of thousands of species. You also may have heard that mass extinctions like this have only happened a few other times in evolutionary history. Now, the cause of this die-off is us. But it's a slow process, and it's easy to dismiss. Because it's not like you wake up one day and the whole species is gone. It's a gradual thing, happening so slowly you barely noticed. There are currently 857 species that have not been declared extinct, but that no one has seen in more than 10 years. There are 104 that no one has seen in over a century. We hear a lot about polar bears and pandas and tigers and elephants and rhinos, but what happens to species that no one really sees that much of? What if it's a fish? Does anyone care? We sent reporter Ashley Cleek to the swamps of Alabama, which is actually one of the most biodiverse places on Earth, to look at what happened to the Alabama sturgeon. It's been on the verge of extinction for over a decade, and now scientists are trying to determine if they can save the species, or if it's already too far gone. Here's Ashley. This is a fish story. But the more I tell it to people, the more this story has become something of a fable, like some Slavic tale where a golden fish disappears, and each character has a different reaction. Some believe it will come back, some think it's gone for good, and some decide it never existed in the first place. And just like every fable has someone on a quest, this story has Steve Ryder. He's been searching for this fish for 16 years. We're out here for the fish, we're out here for for you, you know, for folks. And, uh, if that fish comes back, it's good for everybody all the way around. 
Steve's a biologist with the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. So he's in charge of protecting all the rivers and streams in the state and all the fish and animals that live in them. Steve's serious. He's sincere. He loves science and biology and regularly throws around words like podomadremus, a fish that only migrates in fresh water, or malacologist, someone who studies mussels. Steve's a nerd, but a nerd who can catch an eel, hold it in his bare hands, and explain its intricate life cycle. Steve cares a lot about eels and fish, more than most people in this state, and he knows that fish, like the Alabama sturgeon, don't elicit a lot of sympathy for their plight. I mean, when people say, why, why do you guys care about this fish? You know, we say, well, it's our job. You know, it's our charge. We've got to take care of it. You know, and you, sometimes you can't explain to them uh, the function of an ecosystem and all this. But we're all part of that. If we ch- start changing things, the habitat, the water, that's going to affect us down the line. Steve worries a lot about this, that this fish is a symbol that something is horribly wrong in the rivers and streams of this state. The Alabama sturgeon swam these rivers for millennia. They migrated hundreds of miles upstream, they spawned, they were caught and eaten. But now this golden fish, that was once a staple of life along the river, has vanished. Steve says if the river can no longer sustain sturgeon, what does that say about the water people swim in and fish in, about the streams we drink from? Sometimes as we drive the back roads of South Alabama, he sounds like Chicken Little's southern cousin. But then I'll remember how measured and exact Steve is. And that makes this worry of his terrifying. Because, Steve explains, the sturgeon's death wasn't a natural fading away. The species was killed off, and it took the state of Alabama less than a century to do it. The sturgeon died, Steve explains, because the rivers they lived in changed. And it was us who changed them. Instead of rivers flowing hundreds of miles into the ocean, We built dams that turned the sturgeon's main habitat, the Alabama River, into a stagnant pool of warm water. This is what concerns Steve, how our choices over a century are wiping out wildlife. Steve's convinced that people would heed his clarion call if they could just see one, an Alabama sturgeon. If he could just catch it, then maybe he could figure out how to bring the sturgeon back. He could prove that it's possible for sturgeon and other species. But first, one guy has to catch one fish that no one's seen in years. I meet Steve in a small town in South Alabama called Monroeville. Monroeville's rural and flat, and according to Steve, exactly where sturgeon like to hang out. You know, you look at the stream, and oh, there's nothing in there. You drag a sand through there, and in one, in one sand, you get 10 different species. You know, that's how rich some of these environments are. But that's how in some of those areas, you know, we're losing those species. You know, there's something wrong. And something that we more than likely have caused. We drive down bright orange dirt roads, cut through forests of pine trees, and we pull into this clearing. Before us is a swamp of cypress trees, a cul-de-sac of quiet water off the Alabama River. So it's probably here that I should tell you that I've only been fishing once in my life. I bought a fishing pole but it was more because I thought it would be romantic to catch a fish. I never actually caught one. So I am no asset to this quest. To help find the sturgeon, Steve's got two partners, Travis Powell and Greg Miles. Travis is a barrel-chested biologist. He's worked for the state for so long that technically he could retire tomorrow. But when your job's to catch fish with a guy like Steve, why retire? 
And then there's Greg, the new guy, who I soon learn is the butt of all of Travis's jokes. Now, if he gets hooked and starts screaming, I may want a copy of the recording, okay? Y'all <laughs> like one, too. <laughs> Steve and Greg get the boat ready, and Travis and I walk to the edge of the water. A small fishing boat pulls up, driven by an old man with a toothless smile. He asks what we're up to, and I'm a little eager. This is my first fishing quest, so I tell him we're looking for the Alabama sturgeon. You're not going to find a sturgeon. <laughs> you don't think so? No, no. You've never seen one? I've, ne- I've seen a picture of one, and I'm, as many times as I've fished, I've never caught one. Never seen one. How long have you been fishing here? Almost 50 years. So that's how we start our quest, with a no from the old man oracle of Alabama. We motor out onto the river. The water's like flat brown glass. Try and get out of the side of these trees. Travis gets grumpy when he sits out in the sun too long. We park under the mossy shade of a cypress tree. And for the next two hours, all we do is bait hooks. 600 hooks with worms and sticky night crawlers. So many worms that the guys teach me how to rub my hands in sawdust so they aren't caked in worm guts. It's slow and boring, and there's tons of time to talk about fishing and Bill Clinton, and of course, sturgeon. Still a little longer on those float lines, but that water does rise. Okay. It used to be really easy to catch an Alabama sturgeon. In 1898, local fishermen caught 19,000 of them. There are these stories of people pulling net after net of sturgeon from the Alabama River, cutting them open and scooping out the row for caviar. And, and I kept hearing people talk about sturgeon. And I, I was working in a newspaper, and I was seeing these newspaper accounts, and I thought, gosh, what an amazing thing. This is Bill Finch. He used to be a newspaper guy. Now he's a conservationist. And like Steve, he's been lured in by the legend of the Alabama sturgeon. Bill was in his late 20s, working at a newspaper in Selma, Alabama, when he first heard of this fish. It's kind of this beautiful tannish golden color. And it, 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 it does, because of the scales on sturgeon, the sturgeon scales are, are very large. They're very impressive. They catch the light in, in these really wonderful ways. There's this way that Bill and Steve talk about this fish, like they can see it, nesting on the silty bottom of the river, quietly sparkling underneath their boats. It's this image that taunts them. Fishermen, I've been told, take pictures of the fish they catch, but they dream of the ones they haven't caught. For Bill and Steve, the dream is the Alabama sturgeon. When Bill imagines catching the sturgeon, it's lurking just a few inches from where his line landed. When he pulls it to the surface, he'll see its tail whip and catch the sunlight and sparkle. But this is all a dream. Bill's not speaking from experience. I've never seen an Alabama sturgeon in person. I saw video of it, I saw pictures of it, but I've never touched the thing. It's, it's a rare thing, you know? There's uh, the number of people who are alive who've touched an Alabama sturgeon, uh, who've, who've seen an Alabama sturgeon. I mean, it's so small uh, because they're so now so rare. Bill and I are sitting at a picnic table on the banks of the Cahaba River, a place Bill says where the Alabama sturgeon used to hang out. But by the time Bill had even heard of this fish, many scientists were saying that the Alabama sturgeon was on a downward spiral to extinction. The sturgeon was overfished. Then dams on the river blocked its migration. 
And then the dredging of Mobile Bay and the lower Alabama River removes some of the jetties and shoals where fish hang out and spawn. So instead of a flowing river, the Alabama was turned into a large, hot baby pool where water barely moved and fish had a hard time living. So sturgeon slowly started to die off. And the sturgeon were just the most obvious, the largest domino in a chain of fish, darters, mussels, and crayfish that are slowly disappearing from the river. This, Steve says, shows that something is wrong with the habitat, with the water in the river. And that should concern people, he says. But when people in the state and federal government tried to list the fish as an endangered species, the Alabama sturgeon became this target, the poster fish for government overreach and overregulation in a debate about the Endangered Species Act. Alabama is one of the most diverse places for fish and wildlife in the U.S. It's been called America's Amazon. It has more species of fish, turtles, mussels, snails than any other state. But it also has one of the highest rates of endangered species in the U.S. Conservationists had tried for years to list the Alabama sturgeon, but they butted heads with powerful businessmen and the state senators. Steve wasn't working on the sturgeon then, but he heard about it. They were going to list it, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's going to devastate the economy in Monroeville. You know, the, the power plant's going to, not the power plant, the paper plant's going to have to shut down. You know, everybody's going to lose their job if it's listed. I mean, it, it's, it's a story. It, it's amazing the, uh, the scare tactics that were used. Alabama senators, local mayors, and the business community claimed that if the sturgeon was declared an endangered species, Alabama's economy would lose more than $11 billion and 20,000 jobs. The Business Council of Alabama, a pretty powerful group in the state, urged locals to protest. In fact, they facilitated it. Busloads of folks would be bussed into these meetings, showing up saying, you know, you got like two or three biologists, Fish and Wildlife Service, and there's hundreds of people showing up saying, my job is going away because of this fish. If you list this fish, my job's going away. I mean, that's how, that's how things were back then. The business group drafted letters that people could mail to the federal government. They're filled with exclamation points. I work hard, pay my taxes, go to church, and now the government wants to call a fish endangered and possibly end my job. Well, I say it's the common worker who's endangered. Oh, if that fish comes back, the habitat improves. It's good for everybody all the way around. Um, but sometimes getting that message across to the basic person, you know, just to somebody who, you know, they, maybe they didn't take biology in high school or college and, you know, you know, if you're a banker sometimes and you, you've never fished or hunted in your life, you're not going to have a clue. Um, it's like me, but not having a clue about, you know, being a banker. It's been 20 years. Steve's tried to explain how this fish, the Alabama sturgeon, is different from all other types of sturgeon and why that even matters. He gives talks at schools, he writes paper after paper about the Alabama sturgeon, but he knows the stubborn immovability of belief. The belief that this fish is dead, that it never mattered anyways. Okay, that's good. And that's why Steve's out on a boat in the middle of nowhere, because proof's the only thing that will counter belief. So he's got to find this fish. With our 600 baited hooks, we drive slowly uh, out into the river. We putter around a small wooded island. This is not normal fishing. We're using these things called trot lines in order to catch as many fish as possible. 
Trout lines are these long fishing lines with baited hooks placed at regular intervals. Imagine like a clothesline with hooks hanging off of it. So Travis, who could do this all blindfolded and backwards, ties a weight on one end and then drops the line down so it sinks to the bottom of the river. When he releases the line, one by one, the hooks and bait drop into the murky water. All right, back up. So catching any sturgeon would be an amazing success. But what Steve really needs is a female. If they could get a female that's still producing eggs, then they could use some of the sturgeon sperm they froze back in the 90s. And maybe, if everything worked out just right, they could start a broodstock and save the species. But even if sturgeon were plentiful, Steve says, it'd still be really hard to catch a female. I come to find out that Travis and Steve are the two guys who caught the last sturgeon, accidentally, a decade ago. That was the first time I had seen one. Um, it's kind of funny like that. You're not looking for it, you find one. I just want to state the obvious. This does not bode well for our search. Catching a fish by accident doesn't help you catch it again. We tracked them on a daily basis for, I don't know, Travis, how long? Probably for about half a year. When Travis and Steve caught the sturgeon, they put a transmitter in it, a little device the size of a tube of lipstick, and they tracked him. I mean, we were out there every day on the river finding exactly where he was located. Once a month, we would sit on top of him for 24 hours. We'd just sit on top of him. About every 10 minutes, we would take a location on him. So just imagine this for a second. Once a month, Steve or Travis would take a boat out to the middle of nowhere to a bend in the river where the fish's transmitter was pinging and park on top of it. And for a whole day and night, every 10 minutes, they would measure where the fish was. It was exhausting work, Travis says, and pretty boring and hot. But they learned some stuff. They learned that sturgeon can travel like 40 miles in a day, they learn where sturgeon like to hang out, and that it mostly moves and feeds at night. This was the only study ever done on this fish. I lightheartedly ask if the sturgeon they caught had a name. And Steve makes this face, this quick flash of pain, like I've hit upon a particularly difficult memory. Do you name sturgeon when you catch one? Did it have a name? Or is that ridiculous? Well... <laughs> They didn't want to name the sturgeon partly because of superstition and partly because if they named it and it died, then it would be more than just a dead fish. Well, there was, a, there was one earlier in the 90s, they named, and it died, so we, we didn't want to go there. We, we didn't want to go there. After almost two years, the transmitter in the sturgeon died, and the water went quiet. It was a pretty big blow for Steve. Then, in 2014, there was a breakthrough. A biologist from the University of West Florida, a woman named Alexis Janicek, took 30 water samples from the Alabama River. She was looking for environmental DNA, or eDNA, of the Alabama sturgeon. eDNA is basically anything that an animal leaves behind. So for a fish, think scales, poop, slime. And this eDNA stays in the water for 24 to 36 hours until it starts to degrade. So it's kind of like a clue. In the search for endangered species, it tells you, yeah, this species might be hard to find, but it's not gone. It's still here. eDNA helped revive the search for species like Chinook salmon and Asian carp and giant salamanders and other animals no one's seen for years, but they aren't necessarily extinct. And when Janicek tested the water sample she collected, she found eDNA of the Alabama sturgeon. Not a lot, but some. 
And that's why Steve and Travis and Greg and I are in this backwater. Because this is where the sturgeon eDNA came from. Which tells us it's, it's not something that's ancient. It's been there recently. Steve believes this. He trusts science over rumors and old men's opinions. So we drive slowly around, dropping trot lines of 60 baited hooks in 10 different spots. We're only out on the water for four hours, but with the heat and the sun, it's exhausting. Tomorrow, Steve says, we'll come back early in the morning. And hope we have a fish on the line. We'll have a fish, I don't know if we'll have the fish. If he does have the fish on the line, Steve will not only prove definitively that the sturgeon still exists, he could save this species. It could be huge. But Steve's worried. He feels like now, in 2017, it's a little too late. You know, and some people may feel that the Alabama sturgeon is functionally extinct. Meaning that there may be a few sturgeon, but they're too old and too similar to keep a population alive. Because it took nine years of debate, back and forth, until the sturgeon was officially listed as an endangered species. And, Steve says, while all the politics were being worked out, the numbers of Alabama sturgeon were steadily decreasing. So listing it, frankly, didn't do much. They grabbed onto the Alabama sturgeon and said it's going to ruin, um, it's going to ruin the economy. And quite honestly, it hasn't done anything with listing. It's clear now, after almost two decades of this fish being protected as an endangered species, that the sturgeon did not lead to the unemployment of thousands of workers in Monroeville or cost the Alabama economy billions. But because the sturgeon became this political lightning rod, no one wants to talk about it raise money for it. No one wants to deal with it. So how fair is it, how realistic, to place the weight of the existence of this whole species on three dudes, Steve, Travis, and Greg, to find and revive the Alabama sturgeon? If they find this fish, it'll be huge, a species brought back from the edge of extinction. Or it'll be too late. It won't even matter. In the morning, we're back out again. Steve, Travis, Greg, and I, to pull up the lines and see if we got a sturgeon. One blue. They catch tons of fish. Got another blue, two blues coming up. Two types of catfish, gar. Steve writes down every one as Travis pulls the hooks out of their mouths and throws them back in the water. In one of the nets, they snag a paddlefish. Paddlefish are these long, massive, scaleless fish. Their noses extend out a foot or more like a long, flat spoon. Steve holds the fish in his hands and opens its mouth. Now don't tell me that's not a cool-looking fish. That is amazing. The fish has no teeth, but a series of concentric pink circles that filter water. It looks like a nightmare. Prehistoric. He's a filter yeah. feeder. They eat zooplankton. Put your head in there, we'll take a picture of it. <laughs> totally. You first. <laughs> I've done it. Paddlefish used to be a threatened species. Like the sturgeon, they'd been overfished and their swimming routes were blocked by dams. But now, after some conservation efforts, they're back. We drive around the island collecting lines. And with each line, there's this shot of excitement. Like, this might be the one. 
the line that snags the sturgeon. Steve normally wouldn't be up there doing that. It's just you're on the boat today. Travis likes to pull a line, and that's I all do. he wants to do. I do like to pull a line, because if we get a sturgeon, I want to be the first one to say sturgeon. We spot a bald eagle nesting in a pine tree, a former endangered species. We catch an American eel, and Steve tells me the bizarre story of the eel, how the eggs hatch in the Sargasso Sea, this gyre of four circulating currents in the northern Atlantic Ocean. And the young eels travel 3,500 miles across the sea to North America. Then, when the eels reach the end of their life, they migrate back to the Sargasso Sea to breed and die. But this kind of fishing, it's also tedious. Is that three? That's three. All blue cats. It takes hours to pick up the lines, clear off the fish. And there's this anticipation as each hook comes out of the water. Come on, sturgeon. Line after line, we catch catfish, paddlefish, but nothing we really want. No sturgeon. And that's it. A silence falls when all the hooks are in the boat and the search is over. We do a lot more that day. Steve and Travis take samples of paddlefish eggs and fins, and later they help a team of PhD students catch some fish for their research. But I can tell that Steve's deflated. Steve imagines this ideal job. If he had the money, he'd hire some young biologists, guys with lots of energy and a love of the outdoors, who he could send to decamp to Monroeville and spend weeks on the river fishing for Alabama sturgeon. He's sure that then they would catch one, and maybe it would be a female, and maybe they could get some eggs to hatch, and then who knows? Maybe they could reintroduce the sturgeon to the Alabama River, and people would see them, and they would understand why this one fish is so important. But that's not the future Steve sees. He says he's got the money for maybe two more trips to find the sturgeon, and then he's going to have to cut it loose. Give up on the quest to find the golden fish. And you may say, okay, it's just this one fish, this one species. But it's not. The world's lost half its wildlife in just 40 years because of the things we all know about. Loss of habitat, climate change, commercial fishing, and disruption of migratory routes. And just like with the sturgeon, it's hard to see this kind of drop because it's nearly impossible to look back far enough that we actually know how far we've fallen. Our memory's not that long. So it's normal if there are no sturgeon in our rivers because the last people to catch sturgeon were teenagers back in 1898. They're not around to tell us how it used to be and how quiet and empty our rivers are now. No, I mean, we may have been the last folks to, to see and hold Alabama sturgeon. That may have been it. Quite frankly, that's sad. Hopefully not, but... Steve knows the surgeon's there. He's got its DNA. So the species isn't extinct yet. What we do know is that our efforts to save it are pretty much over. Last 
That's reporter Ashley Cleek. She lives in New York. Thanks again to Saris for making this and other stories possible. We also want to take a second and tell you about another podcast that we love called Side Door. Side Door is a podcast that goes behind the scenes of the Smithsonian. Thousands of artists, scientists, and historians tell stories about everything from solving a 150-year-old murder to an astronomer transforming the night sky into a musical instrument. New episodes are released every other Wednesday, so check it out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance and extinction. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.